I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. We're here tonight to celebrate the launch of um, David Harsant's newest poetry collection, Night. Just published by Faber, it contains two long sequences. The first set in a garden where dreams and nightmares collide and coalesce, and the second, a noirish quest poem with Orphic resonances. He's invited to accompany him tonight, Joe Shapcott and Don Patson. Just to say, first of all, I'm very proud to be invited uh, to read with David to mark the launch of Night. Um, if you haven't bought it yet, do. It's an exceptional book. I think it's next year's Costa Book of the Year. That's my tip. Get your bet in now. In fact, both David and I were commissioned to write a series of poems about bees. And I'm going to start with those. It was a very interesting commission because we got to visit a beekeeper um, and kind of put on the bee suit. I don't mean we were dressed like bees. We wore, you know, the white suit with the veil and so on. The fact, the single most startling fact I learned about bees in all my researches was that because of all the pressures on them, from viruses, toxins, parasites. Bees don't live for very long outside a managed hive, so there are very few feral swarms that survive very long. So it meant the role of the beekeeper is even more important. And in my sequence of poems, uh, you'll see a version of extreme beekeeping. It's a story, it's a little narrative, and it's from the point of view of a woman whose bloke is just leaving for good. And that's how it starts. One last thing. There's a, a tradition in beekeeping. If the beekeeper dies, the family need to go out to the hives and tell the bees. Otherwise, the superstition is that they will fly away, called telling the bees. I tell the bees. He left for good in the early hours with just one book, held tight in his left hand. The cyclopedia of everything pertaining to the care of the honeybee, bees, hives, honey, implements, honey plants, etc. And I begrudged him every single etc., every honey strainer and cucumber blossom, every bee wing and flown year and dead eye. I went outside when the sun rose, whistling to call them out as I walked towards the hive. I pressed my cheek against the wood, opened my synapses to bee hum. I could smell bee hum. It's over, honeys, I whispered, and now you're mine. The story continues, and in the next poem, you need to know about bee dances. I'm sure you all do, but... Um, when bees find a good source of food, pollen and nectar, they fly back to the hive and do quite intricate dance shapes 
to indicate to the other bees clustering round how to find that food source. And they're very accurate, these dances, in terms of both distance and direction. The threshold. I waited all day for tears and wanted them, but there weren't tears. I touched my lashes and the eye water was not water, but wing and fur, and I was weeping bees. Bees on my face, in my hair, bees walking in and out of my ears. Workers landed on my tongue and danced their bee dance as their sisters crowded round for the knowledge. I learned the language too, those zigzags, runs and circles, the whole damned waggle dance catalogue. So nuanced it is, the geography of nectar, the astronomy of pollen. Believe me, through my mouth dusted yellow, I spoke bees, I breathed bees. The hive. The colony grew in my body all that summer. The gaps between my bones filled with honeycomb and my chest vibrated and hummed. I knew the brood was healthy because the pheromones sang through the hive and the queen laid a good 2,000 eggs a day. I smelled of bee bread and royal jelly. My nails shone with propolis. I spent my days freeing bees from my hair and planting clover and bee sage and woundwort and teasel and borage. I was a queendom unto myself. The City of London has a motto, um, and I actually can't remember the Latin, but the English version of the motto is Lord Directus. They need a bit of directing too. Going about with the bees. I walked to the city carrying the hive inside me. The bees vibrated under my ribs. By now, my mouth was wax, my mouth was honey. Passers-by with briefcases and laptops stared as bees flew in and out of my ears and eyes. As I stepped into the bank, the hum increased in my chest and I could tell the bees meant business. The workers flew out into the cool hall, rested on marble counters, waved their antennae over paper and leather. Lord, direct us, I murmured, then felt the queen turn somewhere near my heart. And we all watched, two eyes and five eyes. We all watched the money dissolve like wax. Colony collapse disorder is the name for all the various factors which are putting this pressure on bees and causes hives to be deserted or all the bees to die. Next poem is called CCD. My body broke when the bees left became a thing of bones and spaces and stretched skin. I'd barely noticed the time of wing twitch and pheromone mismatch and brood sealed in with wax. The honeycomb they left behind dissolved into blood and water. Now I smell of sweat and breath, and I think my body cells may have turned hexagonal, though the bees are long gone. And finally, of course, the sting. The sting is no more apis mellifera, is a life without honeybees, without an earful of buzz, an eyeful of yellow. When the wild queen leads the swarm out into the room, don't shut the door on them. Leave them crawling the walls, furniture and books, a decor of moving fuzz. Don't go off to the city alone, work, shop, or travel underground. The sting is no waving antennae breaking through the cap of a hatching bee's cell. The sting is no more feral hive vibrating in the stone wall of the house. No smell of honey as you brush by. No honeybees will follow, nor stay at home without you, not one. And there lies the sting. The sting is no sting. That's those, and there are six, like the sides of the honeycomb cells. 
I'm going to read the title poem of my latest book, which is Of Mutability. Too many of the best cells in my body are itching, feeling jagged, turning raw in this spring chill. It's 2004, and I don't know a soul who doesn't feel small among those numbers, razor small. Look down these days to see your feet mistrust the pavement and your blood tests turn the doctor's expression grave. Look up to catch eclipses, gold leaf, comets, angels, chandeliers out of the corner of your eye. Join them if you like. Learn astrophysics or learn folk song, human sacrifice, mortality, flying, fishing, sex without touching much. Don't trouble, though, to head anywhere but the sky. In the acknowledgments to this book, I refer to the artist Helen Chadwick as the presiding spirit of the collection, and many of the poems are, um, I guess, inspired, yes, by her work. Some refer to her works directly, others to her writings, others to titles. But she had a real impact on me, her work, during the time this book was being written. The next poem is Deft, it's called Deft. And Chadwick said at one point, having used her own body in her work for many years, that she was going to change and not use it anymore. The reason she gave was this. She said, I'm going to desist from using my body in my work because it immediately declares female gender and I want to be more deft. One other thing for this poem, you need to know what an anti-bubble is. I don't know, anybody know anti-bubble? Very simple, it's the opposite of a bubble. It's a blob of water as opposed to a blob of air, surrounded by a skin of air, and it's underwater. You can make it in the washing up. You can even make it pouring beer, which we might try later. Deft. It's as easy to make an anti-bubble in your own kitchen as it is to open up a crease in language and reveal what you couldn't say yesterday. Just a matter of squirting water onto water without snapping the surface tension until liquid surrounds a skin of air surrounding liquid. My body's a drop of water. Maybe the imperfections, the proliferating cells, help it refract the full spectrum. These last breaths, air, water, bubbling at my lips. The soap film is my skin, permeable for some things, membrane, separating other things, this and that, the moving point between, the unsettled limit, stretching and contracting under the breath that comes and goes. I am this one. I am that one. I breathe in and become everything I see. The next poem is called The Deaths. It scared me when I wrote it. It scares me when I read it. Two views of death, I guess, because you think you know how it's going to visit you, but in fact you don't. The Deaths. I thought I knew my death. I thought he would announce himself with all the little creaks and groans you hear of, that we'd get friendly and walk our walk of two drunkards with him chattering inside me about lumps and arteries and his gift of pain, which would be too big to wrap properly, that some way into our courtship he'd give me the look and I'd implode like a ripe mango. I thought I knew my death, so when, after a bee buzz of an afternoon, the rain started and the fine hairs rose on my neck and the long hairs tugged my scalp and my mouth stank of seaweed and a tingle ran round my wrists, I didn't recognise her. She lit a green flame over my head and even then I didn't get it. She threw me yards back, traced her filigree red cartoons on my palms until I was gone and still I didn't know. I go inside the tree. 
indoors for this ash is through the bark. Notice its colour, asphalt or slate in the rain. Then go inside, tasting weather in the tree rings, scoffing years of drought and storm, moving as fast as a woodworm who finds a kick of speed for burrowing into the core, for mouthing pith and sap until the oh my God at the heart. One of my relatives is unfortunately spiralling into dementia and she and I have always talked a lot and we still do but the nature of that conversation is naturally enough now quite different. This poem recounts a conversation between us but even then we have never said these things to each other but I think somehow it gets to what really happens nevertheless. It's called Somewhat Unraveled. Auntie stands by the kettle, looking at the kettle, and says, help me, help me, where is the kettle? I say, little auntie, the curly cues and hopscotch grids unfurling in your brain have hidden it from you. Let me make you a cup of tea. She says, aha, but I do my crossword, don't I? Okay, not the difficult one, the one with the was name cryptic clues, not that. I say, auntie, little auntie, we were never cryptic, so let's not start now. I appreciate your straight-on talk, the built-up toilet seats, the way you wish poetry were just my hobby, our cruises on the stairlift, your concern about my weight, the special seat in the bath. We know where we are. She says, nurse told me I should furniture walk around the house, holding on to it. I say, little auntie, you are a plump armchair in flight, a kitchen table on a difficult hike without boots. You do the sideboard crawl like no one else. You are a sofa rumba. You go to sleep like a rug. She says, I don't like eating. Just as well, you've got a good appetite. I say, littlest auntie, my very little auntie, because she is shrinking now in front of me. Let me cook for you a meal so wholesome and blimmin' pungent with garlic. You will dance on it and eat it through your feet. Then she says, don't you ever want to go to market and get lost in pots, fruit and random fabric? Don't you want to experiment with rain, hide out in storms, cover your body with a layer only one raindrop thick? Don't you want to sell your nail clippings online? She says, look at you with all your language. You never became the flower your mother wanted, but it's not too late. Come with me and rootle in the earth outside my front window. Set yourself in the special bed, the one only was name is allowed to garden. And we will practice opening and closing. And we'll follow the sun with our faces until the cows come home. Just two more. This next poem was the result of um, a collaboration with a neuroscientist who um, was very interested in the processes of creativity. And he taught me uh, about an idea called latent inhibition, and that's the kind of filtering process that happens to us all the time. If we really kind of got sensory impression of everything around us, it would make no sense at all. So it's quite a strong filter. And contemporary ideas about creativity suggest that that filter, that latent inhibition, has to lift in order for new ideas and new connections to be made. The poem attempts to kind of follow a process of composition, of creativity, with all the distractions, which are the best bit always. Composition. And I sat among the dust motes, my pencil sounding loud on the page, and a blast of sun hit a puddle, and a distant radio told the news. I saw a winter tree, and then eternity trembled, and my fingers smelled of garlic from before. 
and the window was smeary, the teacups wanted washing, and the gulf stream was slowing, and oh, my hips ached from sitting. My brain's not right, really. Its latent inhibitions so weigh out that even a hangnail thrilled. I was drowning in possibility, while underneath the world an ice shelf collapsed into the sea, and a cat with a white-tipped tail walked by, and somewhere in my body the change cells gathered, and my hair was damp on my neck, and I prayed to be disturbed, and hurricanos whirled and hissed. My nose itched, my ears hurt, and then there was this. The last poem came about um, after two things happened. The artist I mentioned earlier, Helen Chadwick, has an amazing piece called Piss Flowers, in which she and a male colleague peed into the snow, and she cast uh, the shapes that were left there in bronze. She was an amazing craftswoman, so these things were beautifully made, turned upside down and placed on a kind of field of green, and looking like beautiful shiny bronze flowers, extraordinary, and very witty as well as beautiful. Um, Alongside that, I discovered a cul-de-sac of literature um, written all by men about peeing, about that wonderful golden arc you all do so beautifully, if I may say. I'm not sure what it's about, um, marking out of territory, something like that. Obviously, I can't do that, so this is a kind of Me Too poem. It's called Piss Flower. I can't pretend to a golden parabola or to the downing of many pints for making magnificent water. I can't begin to write my name, no, not even my pet name in the snow, except in pointless, unreadable script. But I can print a stream of bubbles into water with a velocity you'd have to call aesthetic. I can shoot down a jet stream so intense my body rises a full 40 feet and floats on a bubble stem of grace for just a few seconds up there in the urban air. It is true, I have to tell you. Thank you. So we're ready to move on to the next part of the evening. Fresh off the train. Um, he is just editing a book of train poems. <laughs> so, I got that wrong. Welcome to Don Patterson. Hi. Joe said that the, um, the anthology of train poems should be called Of Tutability. <laughs> no, I got it. And so it should. I'm sorry I held up proceedings. I got stuck at uh, Finsbury Park for two hours, which is a kind of frustrating experience. I uh, used the occasion to uh, drink and to reread David's book, which I kind of regret, to be honest with you. I mean, I've read it several times. It's a deeply haunting, beautiful, lyric, terrifying, slow, relentless uh, affair that I couldn't recommend more highly. You know, and I was thinking when I was reading it, it's just like, I mean, you come across those kind of evocations of that place, of night, of waylessness, but you really have it identified with such precision. I mean, you, you have the locale described, you know, that place where, uh, uh, you know, an individual starts to question the flimsy material of which we are constituted, you know, it's just like whether in personality or history or identity or finally being. I think it's a wonderful book. I'll just, I'll read a bunch of sonnets if that's okay. Um, I think that's the collective now. I'll read this one first because I sort of finished it on the train because I had so much time, but it's, it's, um, it's to say it's probably not finished. But I think it's called uh, Seven Questions About the Journey. Why are we leaving in such unreadiness? You were the last. Is it too late to call? Is there time still to confess? The moment's passed. If the weather is stormy, should we go nonetheless? None forecast. Where are our dogs and our horses? Can you guess? Slain, shot, gassed. How will we know when we reach our new address? Heed the blast. How do we look in our fine new leaving dress? Alone. Aghast. 
Where are we going so fast and riderless? Nowhere fast. And this is a, this is a wee, um, I say we, but of course all sonnets are the same length. So it's, it's, there's no relative concept with the, the sonnet. It's a, a wee point for um, Peter Porter, uh, who you'll all know. So I, I am getting to that age, aren't we all, when our friends die occasionally, but the novelty hasn't actually worn off yet, so there's still, there's still a poem involved. The occasion of this poem is the fact that I, I worked for a, a publisher, Picador, and we published Peter's poems, and we knew he was checking out, so we thought it might be a, a, a nice idea to try and get um, a copy of uh, his new selected poems sent over to Peter. Before he, you know, before he died, so uh, we managed to get it into Peter's paw just, just virtually as he was checking through customs. So he got to see this thing, um, which was nice. And uh, he had the most, uh, as you know, again, the most beautifully furnished mind, Peter. It was really unbelievable. It was. He never went to university. He was a classic autodidact who never left uh, university. He never stopped learning. And you know how, you know, when your friends die, you always execute a few more turns because it has too much momentum and you don't quite accept that they've gone yet. I was leafing through the Aberdeen Breviary, which is a gripping read, I should say, uh, and I came across a detail about uh, a saint called St. Philan, and my first thought was to, was to call Peter and tell him about it because I knew he'd enjoy the story, but of course you remember you can't. It's called The Self-Illuminated. As your hand turns white upon the book... We'd biked across so you might see it done. Only you could, at a time like this, put me in mind of that rum business with St. Philan of Glen Dockert, whose brief entry in the breviarium Aberdenense tells of the stone he spat when he was born and of how, denied a candle in his cell, he found his left hand light up from within so he could read till sleep turned out his skin. His relics are five, his crozier are crook, his once candescent bones, his flying bell, and two long lost, one perhaps his psalter, and the other a manuscript or a portable altar. Yeah, I'll read this one. This is quite rude. But it's not very explicit. Uh, I think it's a poem about sex. I know it's a poem about sex. I don't know why I said I think. I know it is. And the other thing I've noticed about poems about sex these days is one no longer features as quite the dashing protagonist in one's own sex poems as one used to. Uh, So this is a more kind of um, heraldic affair. Two. These two, if two, can only half exist, their being so lost, so inwardly inclined that were somehow the universal mind to make its inventory, they would be missed, their bodies having slipped between the hours and dropped down to the silent underland, the white torque of their sheet still in her hand like the means of their escape. From the light purse of their mouths, they pass their only coin endlessly so none may buy or sell. Each is drawn so long and drank so deep from the other's throat or root. Neither can tell tongue from tail or end from origin. Sleep will part them, but they will not sleep. This is also quite recent. It, it did have an occasion. And I was thinking, I've been thinking about scholars recently and the whole business of scholarship. I'm very fortunate to work beside some really wonderful scholars in St Andrews. Uh, but I encountered a, a strange kind of scholarship uh, recently in the TLS. And I, and I did a, a book I sh- probably shouldn't have written. You, you, you know, that comes up um, about Shakespeare's sonnets and got into a wee bit of a scrap about it. So I, I wrote this, uh, this sonnet. I should say that the scholar who features in this poem is a composite, it's a fictional composite. Yeah? It's in no way related to anyone, you know, <laughs> living, dead, or Alistair Fowler. Um, it's called a scholar, and, I th- you know, I hope you'll hear the echo of Yeats in that. It starts with, there's a wee Latin tag at the start, pro capto lecturus habens who have fata libelli um, with, with my failed A-level Latin. It's, it's something like, um, by the capacity... Of its readers, books have their destiny. 
The light is dying and the clock has died. The book succumbs to the atrocious care that disinters the things not wholly there by which your solemn field is justified. You burnish them until they bear the shine of common knowledge, knowing this black skill is yours alone. Before the greater will, all text is dream and takes on the design of what was sought there. Thus, your word is God. This grammary electrifies the gate. None pass but such as you initiate. The students hurry by you in the quad, attending to their feet. What can you say? You know your Shakespeare would have walked that way. Norwegian jazz. Didn't see that coming, did you? Um, uh, <laughs> Norwegian, uh, Norwegians are really good at jazz. Nobody knows why. Particularly singing. Um, there are many wonderful Norwegian jazz singers. Uh, I write a point for everyone. My, but my favourite is um, uh, a woman called Radka Tonev. And Radka died in the early 80s, uh, very young, tragically so. And uh, I keep writing poems uh, for Radka. A wonderful singer. Uh, and I kind of hope this is the last one. So, uh, uh, Radka Tonev. I'll let you go if you let this come good. I'm speaking this as quietly as I can a mile or so into the big day wood where you lost your voice. So much for the plan to master the sounds closer to silence, sing piano. Though I see now what you meant. When the ear lights on the half-said thing, it leans into its distance and is sent out to those spectral fires that play between the inner world and outer dark, as we are, to our zone of breath and blue between the world and the dark. Radka, Skylark, you rose too far. Though as it died away, I heard right through the song to what sung you. As you say, a lot of this, uh, uh, the sonnets in this sequence... Uh, and, and it's, and I feel that the more people I tell this, the more likely it is to happen because it's going to be forty-eight poems long. And so this is a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. You know? I should say the reason I got uh, the idea for the efficacy of the self-fulfilling prophecy was an email that I got from Amazon uh, about a year ago, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. And it was just I mentioned this book about Shakespeare's sonnets earlier, which it had real trouble getting started with. Uh, so it was sitting there with writer's block, and I get this email in, and, it, and you'll have had these from Amazon. It says, you may also enjoy. Yeah? And it said, you may also enjoy uh, reading Shakespeare's sonnets by me. And I'm thinking, and it says, available for pre-order. <laughs> and it, <laughs> I hadn't started it yet, you know. <laughs> so I thought, I'll have one of those. <clears throat> that seemed to do the trick. So by the same principle, there'll be 48 of these eventually. This is about spiritual practice and uh, the pointlessness of retreats and meditational practice. Uh, it's called the eye. The empty mind you finally display ten weeks into the yogic agony of your silent retreat you will discover in the latter stages of a gin hangover. So too the old self slaughtered in the bliss of her astonishing, astonished kiss, the loch in starlight of the late quartet, is what your dog knows as its waking state. What I mean is soul just can't allude to that pretty trance you might know twice a year when the ape is somehow home enough or mind is lost enough for both to disappear. But what it leaves unguarded and unblind, it's holocaust, it's vast solicitude. I've uh, taken to, it's a middle-aged thing, I've taken to having siestas. Do you do this? I think that's a, a sort of an aggrandizement, really. I've, I've taken a fall asleep in the afternoon and not been able to help it. And I read somewhere it was good for you. It was good for your heart. It's not good for my heart, clearly, because, again, this may just be me. Terrible moment of solitude there. I, I always fall asleep for about ten minutes at three o'clock, then wake, wake with my heart, kind of pounding in my ears in a state of, you know, existential crisis. And it's terrible when you get no nods, you know. <laughs> 
No, it is just you. Feeling like you'd been somehow um, cosmically misfiled, you know? You know, you suddenly find yourself as this kind of bald monkey with gravity issues, thinking, what the fuck? I didn't sign up for any of this nonsense. Um, so it's, it's about that, really. It's about falling asleep in the day. It's called Here. I must quit sleeping in the afternoon. I do it for my heart, but all too soon my heart has called it off. It does not love me. If it downed tools, there'd soon be nothing of me. Its hammer beat says, you are, not I am. It prints me off here like a telegram. What do I say? How can the lonely word know who has sent it out or who has heard? Long years since I came round in her womb, enough myself to know I was not home. My dear sea, up in arms at the wrong shore, and her loud heart like a landlord at the door. Where are we now? What misdemeanor sealed my transfer? Mother, why so far afield? This will be the last sonnet. Uh, the, the theme here, incidentally, if, the, if there is a theme, is really what's fashionably called this week, uh, you know, as emergence. You know, you'll know the business of emergence, which is just, it's a very simple idea. It's a wonderful one, which is that if you kind of mark any kind of uh, supernatural interference out of the game, how can you start 13.7 billion years ago with a bunch of hot gas and not much else? Uh, and a bit of, you know, a bit of random quantum fluctuation, but that's pretty much the whole story, and end up having a kind of uh, one-sided conversation in the LRB bookshop, you know? I mean, what the hell? You know, if, that, if you're not impressed at that, I don't know what's going to impress you. <laughs> so this is the point. It's about that, but it's specifically about the business of our, our being here, which uh, I do tend to, to think of as a strange little feedback loop, a little crime against nature, folding back in itself. The air. What is this dark and silent caravan that being nowhere neither comes nor goes, that being never has no hour or span, of which we can say only that it flows? How was it that this empty data stream, this cache of dead light, could so lose its way it wandered back to feed on its own dream? How did that dream grow to the waking day? What is that sound that fades up from the hiss like a glass some random downdraft had set ringing, now full of its only note, its lonely call, drawing on its song to keep it singing? When will the air stop breathing? Will it all come to nothing if nothing came to this? I'll read two wee points to finish with. Called rain. I love all films that start with rain. Rain braiding a window pane, or darkening a hung out dress, or streaming down her upturned face. One big thundering downpour, right through the empty script and score, before the act, before the blame, before the lens pulls through the frame to where a woman sits alone beside a silent telephone or the dress lies ruined on the grass or the girl walks off the overpass and all things flow out from that source along their fatal watercourse however bad or over long such a film can do no wrong so when his native twang shows through or when the boom dips into view or when her speech starts to betray its adaptation from the play. I think to when we opened cold in a starlit gutter, running gold with the neon of a drugstore sign, and I'd read into its blazing line, forget the ink, the milk, the blood, always washed clean with the flood. We rose up from the falling waters, the fallen rains, own sons and daughters, and none of this, none of this matters. I'll finish with a tiny wee thing um, called the handspring. How me of me, I know, to blame it all on that little hampered run 
that running tiptoe. And the whole world swung up on your fingertips as if it were nothing, or at least the weight of nothing. Thank you. Well, I would say, to begin with, thank you to Don and Joe for their kind words and also for being here to help me launch this book. I can't think of two poets and friends whose work I admire more, and it's um, decent of them to have rocked up. (laughs) I ought to just correct just something that was said earlier about this book. It it doesn't consist of two sequences. There's a very long poem with which the book ends. It's called Elsewhere. It's 749 lines, and I'll be reading that later. Um, (laughs) But there are some poems in here, little sequences that sort of poems that belong to each other uh, but there are some soulless poems as well in any event this <clears throat> this is an untitled poem this is a prologue poem really which starts the book off and I suppose is a taster a preparation for what's about to come so it has no title but before it had no title it had a title and it was called Babylon the bitch supreme in spangles and tall Old bloody bones, the beggar king and Sheila a gig, all out on the town. They're up for happy hour, which lasts from dusk to dawn. Night in the city of locks cast a shadow across the moon. Lights come on in the bounty house and the palace of pawn. There's no way of telling blind from sighted, die hard from drone. The serial offenders square up to the gladsome insane. The milksop twins, it's come to this, face each other down. The lipless child in the corner weeps tears of stone. In the tenement cul-de-sacs, the chances cut and run. Something fronts in the dark that could be shadow or stain. There's a smell of scorch in the air and the time to be gone has gone. There are some poems in this book which are, which belong to each other, which are about a garden, not a garden anyone would really want to venture into, and it's certainly not my garden. I would say in sort of kind of self-defence, in the way that Don was self-defensive about one of his sonnets, I'm not an autobiographical poet. There are no personae in my poems. I write little fictions... But I, I do have a garden, and it has got a willow arch in it. And um, it used to be, at the end of the garden, was sort of wreckage, you know, brambles and crap and children's plastic toys and things. And then somehow or another I managed to lay hands on some money, and we had it civilised. And that's when these poems came along. And this one is called The Long Walk to the End of the Garden. The rusty stain on the pillow, the rumble of pain in your knee, impromptus of a dream in which you hacked your way out again and again, the dawn fading up from the green-blue-green of the silver birch, a flourish on the surface of the pond, a ragged skein of bindweed on the stone-cold statuette of that thin-lipped girl from the dream, the odds-on bet that nothing returns or renews, that the stain is just what it seems, that the sudden catch in the throat, the moment of blind regret, will be all in all, that your way through the garden wet will take you for sure out by the willow arch on a morning much like this, and into the lane beyond which must lie the far field, beyond which a nameless road, beyond which a landline drawn in clumsy charcoal below a clumsy sketch of yourself as pseudocide, a frantic silhouette soon smudged to shadow by incoming rain. There are a few little poems too that take the word blood in their titles. They're not together in this book, they sort of leak through it. And this one's called Blood Alley. 
Blood Alley is a big marble, what when I was a kid we used to call tollies, and it's clear glass with a little helix of red through the middle. And the idea, when I used to play this game anyway, you put the smaller marbles in a circle and then another ring of them outside that circle, and you flipped your tolly in and it broke the circle, and then you could start playing marbles. So this is Blood Alley. Your childhood token, a sickle of red in the glass, albino eye, eye of the night-lamped hair. A perfect lob would break the circle. Now hold it close to the light, and every fibril seems to shred as heart blood hangs in water. That same dark dye. Shade of the dress she wore when you had your first full taste of the pulp of her lip and the spittle of her tongue. The cost to you being more than you had to give, which is why the circle must break again and the dream unpick and the child be lost. Not so long ago I went to, well, when it was on, the Rothko retrospective at uh, Tate Modern and I loved Mark Rothko's paintings, I loved going into that room where they were hung because it was dimly lit and extraordinarily affecting I found and there were these paintings sort of almost hovering in the air with these sort of deep depressing colours, very comforting really and um, the the exhibition wasn't hung like that. It, it was it was sort of stark in its hanging. I found myself going from painting to painting, falling progressively out of love with Mark Rothko, um, until I found myself opposite a painting, a canvas which was just black. And I looked at it and I thought, well, fuck you. <laughs> What's this? And it was ill-tempered, really, and I was really cross. Um, so anyway, when I came away, I found myself sort of fooling with the idea of imposing figurative things on his abstracts. In other words, giving them narrative, giving, giving them character and so on. I didn't intend to do it. And it came because I was reading this little extract from his book, The Artist's Reality, which I will read to you because it's the epigraph to this poem. He says, to put it more plainly, the subject or design is what the artist intends in the picture. And his intention in a painting has a point of view to which his subject matter, that is the elements of the painting, will contribute as an integral part of the whole. The subject or design of the painting is therefore the painting itself, and this is the crucial bit, and all of the statements which it makes simultaneously. So each of these poems in this sequence called Abstracts um, has a colour for a title, and this is Red. The skim on the surface of your soup, or the cut on your plate in the Café des Anges, juices swamping the willow-patterned skiff, as she dabs her mouth with her napkin, your blind, blind date, leaving a smudge, lipstick and gore, though there's still a worm of gristle in the gap between her teeth. Mood music, candlelight, wine... Low voices in a world of harm. The creature brought down, hindquarters heavy, hind legs broken by the dogs, its head held up, eyes wide, the tangle and drag as a gralic knife unpegs the bulk, all slippage and seepage, and the way she thumbs a morsel into your mouth, or smiles your smile back at you, or lets you know that everything's just as it seems. Then back at the small hotel, she strips off quicker than you might have hoped, pink as a new-skinned cat, all too eager to have you by heart. Her cry tells you nothing new. This is another blood poem, and it's called Blood Vein. A blood vein is a moth rather beautiful, delicate, um, quite large, beigey kind of coloured thing, <clears throat> which has, going from wingtip to wingtip, a single red line across its back. And this poem is marked In Memoriam. 
soft on a leaf, last of the garden exotica, found only at dusk and pale as the face in the sickbed, except for that long line going wingtip to wingtip, heartstring, nerve track, a thread you might pull were it not for the way she turns and settles her head, the long vein in her throat showing lilac by lamplight, the shadows that peel from her fingers as they spread must be part of some long scene of doubt and decay where all of this plays out. The fractured pearl of the creature's eye, the journey from leaf to lamp that has long been written in, like your word to her, like hers to you, as she palms the bitter pill. I thought I'd sort of keep going thematically, really, um, in a sort of way. So there are not all the poems in this book by any manner of means are arranged sequentially. They don't all belong to each other. <clears throat> there are quite a number of soulless poems, but um, I don't know. It just sort of seemed a nice idea to keep coming back to the poems that sort of belong to one another. This is another from the uh, from abstracts from the from the rejection of Rothko, and it's called Blue. It sings, they say, and so it does. Something like the note that fractures glass or gets so far below the range of human hearing that it shakes your heart. At the glass it breaks is blue, and that's a blue note for sure from the guy on the alto sax in the basement dive, which is where they're bound to meet up in the classic noir, the private eye, the girl with a shadowy past, the old-style cop. And it's nigh uncertain she'll have to take a bullet or we'll see her in prison blue as they lead her to the drop. The fragments of glass were part of it too, that's plain, though no one noticed, just as they failed to spot how the crucifix in her bedroom made sense of the subtle stain on her cocktail dress. And in this, the director's cut, the dive is deeper, the saxophone sadder, the cop bent as a dog's hind leg, the girl a scheming slut. And the gumshoe comes in late with the one and only clue that would finally set things straight, though its true meaning is hidden from him and lost on you. This is one of the Solus poems that I mentioned. This poem doesn't belong to anything but itself, and it's called <coughs> Ghosts. They bring with them a coldness, as tradition demands, and a light, dry odour of rot, much like worm in wood, and bring a chorus of cries to fill the air as if it were birdsong, and bring in their open hands tokens of themselves, a letter, a snapshot, and bring some trace of their point of departure, a smudge on the shoe, a stain on the sleeve, and bring the disguise they lived under, stitched with their names, hoping you'll give them the nod, hoping you'll recognise something perhaps of the old times, the fun and games, while they shuffle up as if they stood on the edge of night so a nudge would tip them over. And bring a dew of death that settles on picture frames, on pelmets, on clothes in the closet, on books, on your eyelash, to make a prism through which you get a broken image of what must be a stage set of the peaceable kingdom, a front for that place you only ever find in dreams, its undrinkable rivers, its scrubland of snarls and hooks, horizons gone askew, beasts hamstrung and walking on their hocks. And bring their long-lost hopes which they lay at your feet, then stand back, stand apart, hairless, soft-skinned, their eyes bright blue like the eyes of the newborn, and bearing a look of matchless sorrow as would for sure stop the heart 
of whoever it is they take you for. Back to my quarrel with Mark Rothko. This one is called Black. You know the room, or think you do. Half dark and windowless, it seems, though maybe the shutters are dropped against the day. Loose talk from women in veils, and something like a pulse on the air when he opens the door and slips straight in. The loden coat, the old slouch hat, the hair lip. So, who else could it be, right on time and keen to help? Think back to those promises, all of them straight from the heart, never asked for, never kept. The skin trade, there's a knack. It's been a lifetime coming, but now you understand or think you do where what you wanted wasn't what you planned. They bring a tray to your bedside, you eat from his hand. read just two more this is called Contre Jour and it came about by accident but I'm glad it did it's in little sections I'll sort of pause dramatically between each section so that you know I've reached one Contre Jour dark blue of dawn deserted streets a light fall of soot in the rain a man out alone the faint asdic of his footfalls on the pavement the city stirring round him, rumble of engines underground or what might be a furnace starting up, a dawn like any other, a nowhere city, the man myself. I could tell I was cold, I could tell I was lost, I could feel the grit from a sleepless night under my eyelids, and that slow, sour churn in the gut of cheap jack wine. Morning shadows rolled low along gutters and sills, like ground mist shrouding the gods of the black back alleys, gods of the threshold. I remembered a half-remembered dream of falling, the sky on fire, cloud rack a bled bruise, wing beats drumming the wind. Blind and breathless, numb to my fingertips, I spread my arms and howled and trod plain air. My descent was a kind of dance. The shadow shifted. When I came to the cross street, I knew which way to go. The underpass stank of sleepers. Trucks overhead had opened a web of fault lines that carried a dark dew, enough to root pale pinhead flowers. A man got up from his mess of bedding then and kept pace with me, unspeaking, his eyes on the light ahead. But he reached out and picked me a flower. It brightened as the stem snapped. He walked me as far as the river and left me there. The cloud broke. Sunlight surged on the water and ran to black by factory footings. A bell began. I seemed to see him again, clean-cutting the surface, feet first from the bridge, past hulls and anchor chains, and days of drifting before he snagged, wide-eyed on the river's sunken iron. By wharves and warehouses, gulls on the garbage scow, the graffiti was all about love and remedies for love. Stone steps took me into the back streets. There came a cry of pleasure or pain from an open window, and something in that I seemed to recognise not the voice, not the place, but the way she broke off as if it might come to laughter. The city square at midday raked by light from a cloud. A skinny dog went through, bone cranking bone. A cafe on one side, 
on the other a church. And suppose I might have been content with that. A splash of neon, the rose window, unanswered silence. Suppose I might have found a way to sit and wait. The memories long since lost, but there's still a sense of someone at my shoulder, of someone beyond the door, of a voice somehow trapped in the room, although the words are shuffled and split. Or there's something barely held, a photograph gone grey, as if dusk had blotted everything except for a shape out of shadow turning towards the night. The city as stone and steel, as silt and litter. Those moments when the roar from the grid holds off, a dynamo winding down, and the sorrowing call to each other through the birdsong. I got to the edge and turned. The backdrop sky was white, and for just that moment, everything stood in negative. The whole place mapped onto itself, the city as guesswork. And here we end. Petrol haze on the bypass, wayside shrines of the accident black spots, votives catching the wind. I'd been on the road a while before I felt a sense of loss, or was it need of forgiveness? Even now, there are times when I wonder if that was the least of it. The bridge, her cry, a flower drawn from darkness. I'll finish with a um, little poem called, tiny poem called Tourist Trap. The wall of skulls, ah yes, eye dimples outward, some holding a sip of rain. The craftsman worked just this side of the fracture point in bone. Something was said of it once, we're told, that must never be said again. Well then, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.